Let us hear the word of God. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. The little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, and their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day... The root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Amen. And then a short reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, these words. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Amen. That reading from Isaiah speaks about the mountain of the Lord, and it speaks about the mountain of the Lord being a place where there is no harm and all is put right. That picture, which we're going to pick up on Isaiah 11, actually begins in Isaiah chapter 2, where it talks about the mountain of the Lord. And we're going to sing a hymn, a paraphrase of that just now, which is fairly well known. But just one image that I learned quite recently as I was reading something about prehistoric people, as you do. And it was talking about the Iron Age. Uh, and it was seen, one of the developments in human technology in the Iron Age was that they discovered, well, not very surprisingly, iron. It's the clues in the name. But iron was a game changer for human civilization because it did two things. First of all, if you built a plow out of iron, the plow could cut gra- ground that was never possible before. And so agriculture expanded, which allowed human civilization to expand. But the other thing you could do with iron was make tougher swords. And so the same technology that allowed people to expand allowed empires to form and enemies to be defeated and people to be conquered. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to the Lord our God. 
Chaos, isn't it? Chaos. Wherever you look, chaos. A war in Europe. Global inflation. An energy crisis. People unsure if they can heat their homes or pay their mortgages. Industrial unrest. It just goes on and on and on and on. And we look as a nation for someone to lead us through it. We look for a leader. And what do we get? Chaos. Chaos. And it doesn't matter what your politics are or what party you support. It just sometimes seems like chaos. By the way, it's not just in Britain. Just now I was reading about Italy and their government's in chaos as well. Does that make you feel better? (laughs) Maybe not. But it was chaotic in Isaiah's day too. There was a moral and spiritual collapse. There was injustice and there was corruption. There was poverty and there was leadership that didn't care. And there was an Assyrian superpower on the march. And the people looked for leadership. They looked in Judah to their king who sat on the same throne that years before King David had sat on. They looked to Ahaz and all they saw was corruption. And the book of Isaiah in some ways is a direly depressing book because it is Isaiah saying things need to change. God is angry and unpleased with all that is happening in this land. That's why Assyria is being allowed to attack. That's why everything is going to go to the dogs. And Ahaz, he's not listening. He's not listening to what Isaiah said. And so the book is full of judgment, of God's devastating anger with the people who have ignored him, who have taken wealth and land for granted, who have practiced materialism and injustice. And yet, I hope as we go through Isaiah, and if you read Isaiah, you will see time and time again, in fact, there's almost too many passages to preach on, passages of hope. Passages that say, even despite the chaos all around you, God, despite His anger, is promising you a future. And time and time again, as God promises the people a future of better times, He does it in the language of saying, there will be new leadership. Good leadership. Better leadership to come. Now, in in their days... Ahaz, who was a rotten king, had a, a, a grandson who, who, who followed him, who ended up being a very good king, a guy called Hezekiah, and you'll read about him in Isaiah as well. He wasn't a bad king. He, he actually reigned for 29 years, so it's a bit longer than Liz Truss. Um, 29 years he was on the throne, and they, they were good times. Things got better. And the message of the Bible is that God kept sending good leaders, and things got better, but it didn't solve the underlying problem because the underlying problem was people's hearts. The underlying problem was that we're sinful, that we're broken, and we turn away from Him. You can look at the long list of people that God sent, and they, they made things better. Moses, and Joshua, and Gideon, and Samuel, and David, and Solomon, and Josiah. The list goes on and on and on of people who came. God sent them, and reforms were made, and things got better, and this was good for a while. For a while. The passage that we read today speaks of a king. 
And it says of this king that he will come in the spirit of God, anointed in the spirit of God. It's one of the reasons, actually, that we, even today, when we have a coronation, we don't just crown a king and say, you've got power, but we anoint them. And that's partly to say that we are praying that God's Holy Spirit would, would come upon that leader. That's a prayer we should make for all leaders, by the way, that God's Holy Spirit would guide them. And what it says here is this king that is coming will be anointed by a spirit of wisdom and of might. Of wisdom and of might. And the king will come. And he will come and he will bring judgment. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, but he will give judgment for the poor and for the needy. And, and some of these verses are really quite terrifying because on one hand you've got this, this king that's coming and he's going to sort the world out. He's going to bring justice. He's going to look after the poor and make sure they're treated well. And then you get bits like he will strike the iron of his rod with his mouth and the breath of his lips will slay the wicked. And we think, what is this? But here's the thing. This is the basic idea of God's justice. We desperately need it. We desperately need a just society. We desperately need a society where those that are downtrodden are lifted up, where the oppressor is brought low. We desperately need a society where when people do things that are wrong, there are consequences. There is, a, there is punishment. There is justice. If there isn't that justice in the world, then what is the point doesn't matter what we do. There are no consequences. And yet at the same time, it's terrifying. Because if justice comes and all wrong is exposed and the oppressors are exposed, where do we stand? We'll come back to that. If there is no justice, we're done for. And if there is justice, we're done for. We'll come back to that. But as this, this vision goes on, it just explodes in verse 6. It, it's poetry. You don't actually need to see all the words. We've sung them and we've heard them sung. Of this vision, not just of a king making things better, but of, of complete universal peace, where the predator becomes the peacemaker, where violence and suffering and divisions are all ended. Brilliant poetical language about the harmony of nature restored. Now, let me ask you this question and put it this way. As we look around at our country today, we all have a desire that things would be better, don't we? Anyone not? But if we actually asked one another, what do we think would make things better, we'd be into political discussion and we would all not agree. Is that fair? We would not agree. There's different visions of the future of Scotland. There's different visions of our relationship with Europe. There's different ideas about who the best leader would be. There's different political parties. Left, right, leave, remain, union, independence. But I wonder, despite the fact we would divide on all these things, if we would unite on this, don't you wish the divisions would stop? Don't you wish the squabblings would cease? Don't you wish one nation would stop fighting another nation? Don't you wish all the sides would come together? Don't you wish for a leader who wouldn't just give a better political platform for a wee while, but actually would take us to a better world? That's the aspiration I think every human being has deep down. 
It's a Messiah-shaped hole in our hearts. And that's why some people, when they look at processes, are looking for that leader. And sometimes they look in reasonable places for it, and sometimes they look in really frightening places for it. That's why a lot of folk like the Putins of this world, because they seem to promise that things can be different. We have a Messiah-shaped hole. That word for an anointed one in Hebrew is Messiah. And the Bible, of course, says that the Messiah that God promises, that fulfills those deep yearnings in our hearts, is Jesus. And in the incarnation, in the Christmas story, we learn how He comes. And He comes to bring justice to the poor. Oh, we see that in the story itself. Jesus doesn't just come to give justice to the poor. He comes among the poor. He's born into poverty. He's born to a couple of peasants living in a, in a backwater. And He doesn't just come in poverty. He lives with a priority for the poorest. You read the gospel accounts. This is there in the Bible. Who is Jesus with? The poorest, the weakest, the unwanted, the marginalized, the rejected, the folk who have done everything wrong in their lives and can't make sense of it anymore? And if we follow a leader, we have to follow Jesus in, in, in those things. It's why the church has to be always among the most broken in our society, always. Can't just be giving money and sending it off or, or shouting and making a political statement. We actually have to be there among them. It's why we open the church up in so many ways, and, and the church always has. Despite all the things the church has got wrong in history, if you look back on history, who started the hospitals? The monasteries did. It was the church. Who created the schools in Scotland? The church. Who had a vision of universal education for everybody in Scotland, regardless of who they were? The church. Who gave alms and had almshouses before there was a welfare state? The church. Did it get lots of things wrong? Absolutely. Did it get that right? Yeah. It's basic to what we are about because Jesus is who we point to. The other thing it says of this king in that passage of the Spirit coming is that he comes with wisdom. I, I, I love verse 3 where it says he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. You know, if you look at all the most stupid decisions you've made in life, they're probably because you looked at things superficially, aren't they? That looks good. You know, that's a good way. We didn't really ask the deep questions. Jesus comes with the perfect wisdom of God, and it is a wisdom that is absolutely foolish in this world's eyes. You know, in, in, in business planning or, or any type of planning, even in church planning to these days, you, you'll get told, have a goal and have a strategic plan to achieve the goal. Is that, is that right, folks are in those lines? You have to have a clear idea of where you want to be, and then you have to have a realistic strategic plan that's going to get you there. And you get the consultants in and pay them a fortune to, to tell you that that you knew already, don't you? Well, imagine this. Here's the goal. I've got a goal that 2,000 years from now, everybody will have heard of me. And 2,000 years from now, a quarter of the world will follow my teaching. And 2,000 years from now, there'll be whole civilizations that are based on my word. There's a goal. It's quite a good goal, isn't it? What's the plan? 
well, we get all the consultants in and they're all talking about this and that and the next thing. And I say, no, no, I've got my strategic plan. I'm going to be born in poverty. I'm going to work in some scattered villages in a backwater. I'm going to meet no social influencers. I'm going to travel to no important world cities. And three years after I've started my mission, I'm going to die a humiliating death. That's my strategic plan. Is that wise? Well, I don't think there's many consultants that would say, yeah. It's foolish. It's foolishness. It's crazy. Because the world values success, and that does not look like a success formula. In fact, Paul says, even back in his day, he says, Jews look for signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, the stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. You know, the modern world said to the church over the last couple of hundred years, what you're doing is not wise. If you want to get taken seriously, church, in this modern world, you're going to have to change your patter. You're going to have to dump all that supernatural stuff because people really can't cope with that in the modern world. You know, God and, and being born again and all that stuff. Get rid of all that. Just concentrate on the ethical teaching. Dump the miracles. Stick to the ethical teaching. People in the modern world, they'll relate to all of that because that's how they think. You know, the Western church in many ways, basically took that advice and said they'll go with it. And the Western church today is dying. But in Africa, in China, in Asia, the picture is different because the church largely ignored that modern advice and it stuck to a belief in the Word of God, in the Scriptures, to the truth of Jesus Christ risen from the dead, and it proclaimed it, the supernatural power of God to change lives. And in Africa, where there was eight and a half million Christians in 1900, there are 600 million today. In Korea, which in 1900, 1% of the population was Christian, today it is 29% of the population. In China, where there were almost no Christians, Today, there are officially 40 million, and Open Doors reckons it's more like 100 million when you include the underground church. It's growing. Christianity remains the fastest growing power in the world today because it's stuck in so many ways to what the world called stupid. And so, God is sending this king, and this king turns everything on his head. This king that is born as a baby, this king that dies in humiliation. And we read about him in this verse. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, if you think about this, first of all, you need to know a little bit of the Bible here, and just in case for those that, that don't remember this, Jesse was David's dad. And David was the first king of this long line of kings that went from David to Solomon right the way down to Ahaz and goes right down in the New Testament to Joseph and Mary. But here's what's being said at this point. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. A stump. It's not just that something will grow out of this tree, but in God in His judgment is coming and He's cut the tree and he's not just 
cut off Ahaz and said a new king will, be, will come along after that. He's cut it right back. He's cut it right back to before there was a kingdom, to before there was a David, right back to David's dad. And who was David's dad? Well, all David's dad was was a shepherd on the hills of Bethlehem. His father, Jesse's father, was called Obed, and Obed's mum had been a Moabite asylum seeker called Ruth. They were nobodies. And he had eight sons, and some of them were okay. They went off and fought in the army. The, the, the youngest of them became a shepherd as well. So much so, his dad forgot about him until he appointed him to be a cheese delivery boy. And he met a giant, and the rest is God's grace as he chose him, as God chose David and made him his king, anointed him in Bethlehem. But here's a strange thing. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse is very well, but actually the passage ends by saying, on that day, the root of Jesse will be a banner for the people. Now, I don't know much about trees. Um, Colin does, but only how to cut them down, I think. But the stump with a shoot branching off, that's fine, that's going that way. But the root is going the other way. So, wait a minute. How does this make any sense? In one sense, we're saying this king that's going to come is going to be a descendant of Jesse, come out from that, 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 that line of kings and, uh, and come. And on the other hand, we're seeing this king that's going to come is going to be the root of Jesse. So this king that's going to come is going to be descended from Jesse, but he's also going to be the one who brought Jesse into being. I, I was reading the commentator on this, and it says the Old Testament is a dilemma waiting for a resolution. How, how, how can that happen? And that's exactly what Jesus points out in the passage that we, we read from, from, from Mark. How can you talk about the Messiah being the son of David when David calls him his Lord and talks to him as if he already was? What is going on here? How can the Messiah be the root of his own ancestors? Well, the answer is that he was there before all of time. He is the one to whom every king points. Everything that they looked that was good in that kingship, in that leadership they'd had in the past, every bit of justice that it brought, every bit of reprieve that it brought, every bit of harmony that it brought, every bit of wisdom that it brought, every little thing it got right was pointing forward to the fulfillment of the need of all people for the chaos to end, for the hatred to end, for the injustice to end. It was pointing forward to the king that would be above all kings, to the line of David, to the God who became a man, to the root who became the branch, the beginning that became the end. Why does this matter? Rewind the discussion to what we need. We need one who brings justice, but that terrible dilemma... We need one who comes and sets us free from all oppression, but that terrible dilemma that we are both, all human beings, the oppressed and the oppressors, the sinned against 
and the sinners. And that's the dilemma that you will see as, as, as you look through the whole book of Isaiah. That on one hand, he's saying, I'm, I'm going to come and set you free from these Assyrians and these, 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 these people, these invaders and all these other things. On the other hand, he's saying, I'm going to come and deal with the injustice and the sin that's caused all of this and deal with it with justice. And that is the human dilemma. If there is no judge and there is no justice, then there is no point and there is no meaning. You can do what you want. It doesn't matter. Someone can do what they want to you. It doesn't matter. In the end, we're all dead, and that's the end of the whole thing. There can be no ethics. There can be no morality. There can be no right and wrong because there is no judge. There is no appeal court. There is no nothing. It's why, in the end, all of our human rights sits on that basis of Christianity because it sits on the idea that there is an absolute right and an absolute wrong because there is a lawgiver and he will judge the nation someday. We just don't know it. But again, if there is no judge and there is no justice, we are doomed. And if there is a judge and there is justice, we are doomed. So what is the good news? The good news is the nature of this king that is coming, and we will see this as we move through Isaiah even more. For this is the king that comes to bring judgment on the earth, and yet he is the king that comes and takes the punishment on himself. He takes the pain of the world seriously, but he breathes forgiveness and he breathes hope. And that is the leader that we need to follow that is the hope that we need to go on. As we look at governments and churches and all that we do in this day, that is what we strive for and we echo. The one that brings salvation for our souls, forgiveness for our sins, hope for the world, freedom for the oppressed. For he comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray.